Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. crossing of the Israelites through the Red Sea is one of the most famous scenes in the story of the Exodus out of Egypt. But can it be that for the last couple thousand years, historians, geographers, and scholars have had the wrong sea in mind? Dr. Glenn A. Fritz believes the answer is yes, and he's here to tell us why. We'll be discussing his recent book, The Lost Sea of the Exodus. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, and I'm L. Michael Morales, your host. Glenn A. Fritz has been involved in the study of the Exodus geography for 17 years. He holds a Ph.D. in environmental geography from Texas State University, San Marcos. His doctoral dissertation, completed in 2006, pursued the location of Israel's sea crossing. Listeners can visit his website, ancientexodus.com, where Fritz explores questions of locating both the correct sea of the Exodus as well as the correct Mount Sinai. Glenn, thanks for being with us today. Michael, it's a pleasure to speak with you. So, Glenn, you did your Ph.D. research on the location of Yom Suf, the sea that Israel crossed during the Exodus. What first sparked your interest in that topic? It's actually quite a zigzag path, but to cut to the chase, I was originally trained as an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, and I spent 16 years in private practice. And that gave me a science-driven analytical background. And the most important thing for a surgeon is to understand the normal anatomy, and only then can you understand the abnormal or pathological anatomy. And when I started my career in geography a number of years later, I found there was a similar principle in geography. You have to understand the normal or correct geography before you can identify geographical error. And so in the case of the Exodus, the Bible is the only source of our geographical framework. But many Exodus traditions ignore or pervert this geography, which has led to a number of conflicting and erroneous theories. But my interest in the Exodus began about 1996 when I first visited Israel, And there were a lot of people on the trip that had questions about the Exodus, but I'd never studied it, and I had no answers for anybody. But I surmised there must be some kind of analytical way to approach the Exodus geography, and I I tucked that away in my mind as a a future challenge that I, I would like to tackle. And then on that same trip, I met a rabbi from San Antonio who challenged me to study Hebrew, And subsequently, I studied Hebrew for four years. In retrospect, uh, the knowledge of the Hebrew has really helped me glean uh, geographical subtlety from the Bible. It really helped me in this topic of the Sea of the Exodus. But um, in my initial approach to the Exodus, I organized all the place names in chronological order, and I noticed some names were referenced by different terms and from different perspectives, but what stuck out is that the name for the Sea of the Exodus, Yom Suf, 
was mentioned a number of times. Moses mentioned it 12 times. And when I say Yam Suf, in English we would perhaps spell it Y-A-M-S-U-P-H, Yam Suf. Most Bibles render this Hebrew term as Red Sea. And so most listeners won't be familiar with the idea of Yam Suf as the name for the Sea of the Exodus. But the listeners also need to realize that Red Sea is not a translation of the Hebrew Yam Suf. It's merely an interpretation uh, that was started with the Hebrew, with the Septuagint Bible around 2,200 years ago. In initially approaching Exodus, I recognized that many theories identified this Yam Suf as a reedy swamp in Egypt. But I, I found it very curious that Yam Suf was mentioned as a landmark in the last year of the Exodus relative to events that were very distant from Egypt. And, and I thought that was a real contradiction to the, some of the Reed Sea theories that seemed to dominate the literature. But I also realized that uh, going back to the places of the Exodus, that they had to all be connected by a route that could be traversed by thousands of people accompanied by large herds. And when you look at the desert topography between Egypt and the Promised Land of Canaan, it has many geographical barriers, mountains, valleys, rough terrain, bodies of water, but it has very few corridors suited to a multitude. And and so that very fact helps limit what you're looking for in terms of reconstructing the Exodus itinerary, because you just can't go from point A to point B over mountains, valleys, rough terrain, and, and it, it doesn't add up. So I realized, again, this is in the late 90s, 2000, that to analyze these potential corridors to reconstruct the ex Exodus, I really needed detailed 3D satellite mapping capabilities, and that was not available. It was not an off-the-shelf product. The, the listener needs to remember that Google Earth, which we can now take for granted, was not released to the public till 2005, and it didn't become a browser-enabled item until about 2008. So that's a relatively recent tool, and it's very magnificent, but nothing like that existed when I started this research in 2000. So that quest led me to Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas, where in 2001 I began postgraduate studies in cartography and satellite imagery analysis. And it was accidental. In 2006, I did get a PhD in environmental geography but I did not have that in mind when I started. It was just a quest to try to come up with a mechanism to analyze the terrain in the region of the Exodus. So things grew, you know, as I said, it's a zigzag uh, route to getting to this book. But in my geographical studies at the university, I realized that the Sea of the Exodus, Yam Suf, was probably one of the most vital parts of reconstructing the route, even more important than Mount Sinai. And that led to my 2006 doctoral dissertation entitled The Lost Sea of the Exodus, A Modern Geographical Analysis. 
And then the following year, in 2007, I released a book version of that work. And now in 2016, we're talking about the second edition, which is a re-edited, greatly enlarged version of 350 pages and 180 maps and illustrations. And this book and the research behind it concludes that the biblical geography references to this Yom Suf pertain solely to the Gulf of Aqaba. And uh, to give an interview without visual maps is difficult, but to acquaint your listener, the Gulf of Aqaba is a 100-mile-long strip of water outlining the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula, and it separates the Sinai Peninsula from the Arabian Peninsula, which is now Saudi Arabia. So this Gulf of Aqaba is what the Bible repeatedly refers to in its references to Yom Suf. And the important point in my research is that this whole idea was missed through the centuries by scholars because they did not know about this particular gulf. It was missing from the maps and the geographical writings for most of history. And so as the various theories for the Exodus and the sea crossing emerged, the Gulf of Aqaba, which the Bible references, could not be considered as an alternative because it was essentially a dark spot on the map, an unknown area. And I thought that was so interesting that this piece of information, this body of water had been unexplored and, and on map for so long that it had blocked the normal thinking and theoretical process of understanding the geography of the Exodus. To get a mental map in our minds for this discussion, listeners can picture the Sinai Peninsula as an upside-down triangle. On the left side of that triangle on the west is the Gulf of Suez leading down to the Red Sea, where scholars traditionally place the sea crossing. On the right side of that upside-down triangle is the Gulf of Aqaba on the east, where Fritz locates the crossing. Glenn, apparently there are some problems for the traditional understanding of the sea crossing. Two locales are typically set forth which you believe are wrong. The Red Sea, which is the northern part of the Gulf of Suez, and then the Sea of Reeds. Great. That's that's a good issue to bring up. First of all, we have to understand that there's been an evolution of the idea from the Red Sea to the Sea of Reeds. And all of this, these ideas that evolved uh, pertained strictly to the area of Egypt. And so if the Bible is referring to a body of water at the Gulf of Aqaba near Canaan, how is it that all of these theories and histories evolved uh, concerning bodies of water near Egypt. We start the story with the Septuagint, the first uh, translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek around 2,200 years ago. And whenever they came across the term Yom Suf, they called it Red Sea in Greek. And when we look at the maps and the writings at the time of the Septuagint, it's clear that their concept of the Red Sea was as a single shaft of water extending from Egypt south a great distance into what we now know as maybe the Indian Ocean. But they thought, thought of it as a single shaft of water, and 
that was the they only knew two seas. They knew that Red Sea, that shaft of water, and they knew the Mediterranean, and that that was all that was written of at that time. And so, whenever they saw Yam Suf, these uh, scholars of the Septuagint substituted Red Sea. Now, what's interesting is that there are three places where the term Yam Suf appears, and they didn't know what to call it because it was near Canaan. And so they called it other names, and I go through that in my in my book. So they were confused about the geography of Yam Suf, and they, but they did assign it as the idea of Red Sea. And so from that point forth, beginning with uh, uh, Jewish historian Josephus around 2,000 years ago, he talked about a crossing of the Red Sea in the Exodus, and it was assumed that it was this body of water near Egypt. And because there were no maps or uh, geographical information sources that even spoke of the Gulf of Aqaba as an alternative, this was the status quo. Now we move into the idea of the Reed Sea or the Reedy Sea. How did that develop from the Red Sea? Well, Pliny, a classical author uh, over 2,000 years ago, wrote of forests in the Red Sea, of vegetation in the sea, probably referring to coral. And we also see like in Milton's Paradise Lost in the 17th century that he refers to it as the Sedge Sea. And then you have Luther's uh, German Bible in 1534 that instead of using the term Red Sea, he called it Schilfmere, which in German means Reed Sea. And so there was this idea that the Red Sea was also the Reedy Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, or associated with vegetation. And then combined with this idea, there were a traditional biblical translations that tended to use vegetation terms for Suf, the Suf of Yam Suf, uh, particularly in the finding of Moses in the Nile, where uh, it says uh, that the basket of Moses was found among the Suf. And traditionally, that's, they've used vegetation terms like reeds to, to translate that, but um, that is a problem in itself. But that helps to explain this, this vegetation or plant idea that was assigned to the Red Sea, calling it euphemistically the Sea of Reeds or the Reedy Sea. And so that, that concept lasted up until the 1900s, uh, a century or so ago. And at that point, we had people that wanted to try to make the crossing of the sea more naturalistic and less dependent upon miracles. Uh, And they, they decided that perhaps the Red Sea had extended over the Isthmus of Suez, east of Egypt, and that it was an inland sea, a shallow sea either caused by high sea levels or low land levels and that was through this inland extension of the Red Sea that the Exodus crossing occurred and the convenient aspect of this idea is that people that wanted to use wind as the dominant factor in the parting of the water they could explain that that perhaps shallow water could be parted by wind and, and this whole thing could happen in in these uh, lowlands 
uh, with shallow water uh, east of Egypt. So that was the inland sea idea. And so what, what you, you saw is the concept of a true sea in Yam Suf and the Red Sea now creeping inland to shallow water that could be navigated without supernatural intervention um, during the Exodus. Next, you had uh, the concept of the Sea of Reeds as being a shallow Egyptian swamp. And this was introduced by several Egyptologists in the late 1800s. And the, as I read these accounts of how these ideas were introduced, I see absolutely no use of biblical geography, no consideration of the Yom Suf terminology in the Bible and the references to Yom Suf as a distant body of water near Canaan. And so the Sea of Reeds idea now used the vegetation or reedy idea of the Red Sea, and it used the shallow water concept of the inland sea theories, and it completely segregated Yom Suf from the Red Sea, from being a sea to being this shallow swamp that, again, would require no supernatural intervention for crossing. And so what we see is a long story of unjustified evolution from the Red Sea to the Sea of Reeds to the Inland Sea to the Swamp Sea of Reed idea, which is now probably the most popular in the literature. And yet we can see how the lack of knowledge of the existence of the Gulf of Aqaba as an alternative body of water influenced history and tradition for thousands of years. And then we can also see how the Egyptologists seized on the idea of vegetation and a vegetation meaning for Yom Suf and shallow water, all the while ignoring the biblical geography and almost had a pipe dream of this Yom Suf as being a, a little shallow lake or sea of reeds immediately adjacent to the Nile Delta. So that's a thumbnail sketch of the evolution of the Red Sea to the Sea of Reeds, which is probably now the dominant theory, as opposed to the idea that Yom Suf was a true sea that the Bible describes as being near Canaan. Now, how would you translate Yom Suf? Well, first of all, Yom clearly means sea. The mm -hmm. word appears 396 times in the Old Testament, there are a few times when it's used uh, hyperbolically to describe the brazen sea in the temple, uh, which was used for the priestly washing. But the majority of times, it, it always refers to a large body of water, specifically a sea. So Yam Suf, you have to say, it's a sea. And Suf itself comes from a word family. Hebrew is made up of word families each having a root word that's a verb. And the root word of the Sioux family means to end, to cease, to form a border. And it doesn't, the root word has no sense of vegetation, plants or reeds or things of that sort. And so in the 116 Sioux-like words in the Bible, they all refer to end, or border, or edge. Now, to me, the key verse concerning the meaning of Yom Suf has to do with its original function. And that is seen in Exodus 23:31, where the Lord states to Moses that 
I will set the promised land bounds from Yom Suf to the Mediterranean and from the wilderness onto the river Euphrates. That statement is describing the width and the length of the promised land, using Yom Suf as the southern border of that land. And so when we think of Suf as meaning to cease, to end, to bound, I, I apply those ideas to this geographical function of Yom Suf as a boundary marker, as a landmark of the promised land, and realize that the promised land was everything to the Hebrews. And the, the boundary marker of that land would be ultimately understood and ultimately important. And so to me, Yom Suf means the sea of end or sea of boundary, or sea of border, uh, those sorts of meanings. The scholar Bado has what is, to my mind, a persuasive article. He also argues for a sea of end or a sea of extinction translation for Yom Suf. He seems to take a theological or mythological reading where the sea is the end for the Egyptians and the end of the old life for the Israelites. Well, it seems to me that uh, in some places in Scripture that uh, the Lord discloses a sense of humor. And so perhaps there was a, a double meaning in terms of the end of the enemy, the end of the Egyptians, but also in the geographical sense as the end of the land, the end point. And, uh, you, you know, it, it is kind of uh, interesting to see the, the, the double meaning that can be there with, with the idea of Yom Suf. So, Glenn, what are some of the indicators that the Gulf of Aqaba is the sea that parted for the Israelites? When the Bible refers to the event at Yom Suf during the Exodus, in numerous places, the, the Psalms and the, the Torah, it describes Yom Suf as being deep and uh, rough and uses terms that would have to be associated with a, a large body of water, not a pond or swamp. And, and so I think the way that it's referenced, the descriptive language also suggests that we're looking for a sea. And again, with the, with the predominant theories being that it was a, a shallow swamp near Egypt, you have a, a, a clash of concepts there with the way the Bible describes this body of water. But as a geographer, my attempt was to lay out the geographical relationships. And to me, that's the most analytical thing I can do, is, is to look at the language, the words, the spatial relationships, and say, well, this is what it says. And, and conversely, there are no verses in Scripture that require Yom Suf to have been near Egypt. In fact, if it was near Egypt, the whole boundary definition using Yom Suf doesn't make sense. It's got to be in the position of the Gulf of Aqaba for it to make sense with the boundary of the Promised Land. And I, I find another thing that's interesting, too, in the story of the frog plague, the Bible mentions a whole bunch of 
different terms for water in Egypt. And uh, you find that in Exodus chapter 7, where these frogs were upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, upon their ponds, upon all their pools of water. Uh, again, in the next chapter, upon their streams, the rivers, over the ponds, using a number of Hebrew words to describe the bodies of water in Egypt. But none of these names use the term yam or use the term suf. In describing all of these bodies of water, the, the Bible is trying to explain every body of water in Egypt had these frogs, every single one. But there's people that like to say, well, Yom referred uh, to, you know, is like an exaggeration, a hyperbolic a description of a swamp or a, or a lake or something, whatever. But at the time of the Exodus, when this frog plague is described, and the Bible is exhaustively listing the bodies of water in Egypt, it says nothing of a yam, and certainly nothing of a yam suit. So I think you can look at the positive geographical evidence, and then you can look at the other side of that with the absence of evidence for the Egyptian location. Now, it's hard to argue from the negative, but it is, it is something that... that clearly would support the geographical position at Gulf of Aqaba. You have an appendix discussion related to the locust plagues. English translations of the book of Exodus state that the Lord blew the locusts into the Yom Suf. And so many scholars say the Yom Suf couldn't be the Gulf of Aqaba because that would be sending the locusts clear to the other side of the Sinai Peninsula. Can you give our listeners a summary of your response? Yes, in that account... The Bible says that the Lord turned the sea wind to a west wind. And so when you're in Egypt, the sea wind is coming off of the Mediterranean. It's blowing north to south from the sea over the land. But God turned that wind to blow the locusts. In the Hebrew, it says, toward Yom Suf. It's, it's a very minor grammatical thing, but it's clearly there. It says toward, uh, in the grammar, toward Yom Suf. It doesn't say into in any way. And so all that's being described there are general large directions over a, a, a big region where we're getting the picture of the wind being turned. And to Moses writing that, in his mind, Yom Suf would have been the most distant, recognizable landmark that he could set forth for his readers to have them understand that that was the general direction that the wind was blowing the locusts toward. And of course, that landmark being the boundary of the promised land would certainly be a significant landmark to use. And so that's that's a case in point there where having studied the Hebrew and reading these scriptures in Hebrew and then reading the translations points out that some of these traditional wordings in the translations really hide the geography or the details that are present. And the classic example is you brought up, it says the wind blew the locust into Yom Suf, which is totally 
wrong. And it's a concept that was based on tradition going back hundreds of years or thousands of years where the idea was, okay, the Red Sea was right by Egypt, and so, yeah, it, it, it blew the locusts into the sea and it killed them so they didn't fly back into Egypt. That would be the, the sophomoric traditional way to look at it. It's easy to overlook because you have the word yam, which we would spell Y-A-M, and the scripture says yama, Y-A-M-A-H in English. Well, that little A-H ending on there is what means sea word or toward the sea, sea word. That little, that little tiny ending on there is, is the grammatical marker for sea word. And it's easy to miss that. It's easy to overlook it. Translators will think, oh, it's no big deal whether it went toward or into. But for our purposes, recognizing where Yom Suf really is, it's a big deal. In placing the sea crossing at the Gulf of Aqaba, it follows that Mount Sinai then cannot be in the Sinai Peninsula. Is that right? Well, that would be logical that uh, the mountain would be found on the far side of the sea crossing. And, and I think it's it's interesting, and I've even done this on a map, if you take the traditional location of the sea crossing at the uh, head of the Gulf of Suez and the traditional location of Mount Sinai in the southern Sinai Peninsula, and you just rotate that whole thing uh, so that the sea crossing occurs at the Gulf of Aqaba, that then places the mountain somewhere in a similar situation in the Arabian Peninsula. So that's what we have is you have a, a much more distant location for the sea crossing, which definitely leads us to look at the Arabian Peninsula as a location for Mount Sinai. And are there some mountains in the Midian area proposed to be Mount Sinai? Yes, I've studied that question extensively. I've visited uh, the areas that that could be the ho the place that hosts Mount Sinai. And I've written a book published in uh, electronic form called Fire on the Mountain, uh, the geography, geology, and theophany uh, at Jebel Laws. Uh, and, and so as I look at the problem, I, I, I looked at it from the standpoint of, well, Moses was in Midian. Moses went to the mountain of God, which was Mount Sinai. How would he have gotten there, and why would he have gone there? And if you look at the historical geography of Midian, the way the mountains are and the way the mountain passes exist, you see that there's only two ways Moses could have gone to the wilderness where Mount Sinai was located. And the reason that he would have gone there is because it's located in the highlands east of the coastal Midian area, and it was the, the custom of the Bedouin and shepherds through the ages to, to uh, take their herds to the higher elevations during the hot seasons of the year. So they would retreat to the coastal areas in the winter, and in the spring and summer they'd go to the highlands. And that's what Moses was doing. He was taking the sheep eastward from the Midian lowlands to this highland plateau, and that highland plateau, which is called the Hizma in modern times, is outlined to the west by a chain of mountains, which includes the Jebel El-Laz range. Jebel El-Laz happens to be the tallest peak 
in the area. And uh, there are some references, uh, for instance, Josephus to it being the tallest peak in the region. And so that might be a place to, to look to start. And uh, from my review of the geography, the historical geography, the potential travel routes, the places where vegetation and water would be most likely, uh, I tend to favor the Jebel Laws Range as a as a place to look. Glenn, before we let you go, why don't you tell our listeners about your website, ancientexodus.com, and about any other projects you're working on? Yes, that's uh, ancientexodus.com. I, I have got a number of articles posted there uh, regarding some of the uh, Exodus topics. One topic that's been uh, very popular is the reference to uh, Mount Sinai by the Apostle Paul in Galatians. So I have an extensive article posted about that, which is quite fascinating because the Apostle Paul used apparently two important geographical terms in the Greek that seemed to give us a pretty strong idea of where to look for Mount Sinai relative to Jerusalem. Uh, I've also got some things posted about was uh, Mount Sinai a volcano. Some people say that, oh, this the cloud and the pillar of fire was volcanic, and I addressed that in detail. And uh, so there's a number of articles there that are academically written uh, set of discussions, but yet the, the layperson can appreciate the arguments, and I use a lot of maps and images to try to convey the information that's important. It's been a pleasure, Glenn, having you on the show. Thank you for spending time with us. Well, Michael, you've been a good questioner, and I've enjoyed talking to you. Friends, you've been listening to Glenn Fritz discuss his recent book, The Lost Sea of the Exodus. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of New Books in Biblical Studies. Mm-hmm.